Well, before we jump into today's message, I just want to give you a little preview. Next week, we're starting a brand new series that leads right into Christmas, and it's going to be a little bit different. And so if you come in expecting kind of the same old, same old, uh, it's it's not. It's, it's, um, it's, it's going to be... I don't know. I'm not exactly sure how it's all going to come together. I'm a little nervous. I'm very excited because I think it's going to be a lot of fun for all of us. So I want to encourage you to be a part of that uh, for the next three weeks. Uh, uh, And uh, it's a great time to invite friends because a lot of your friends are really open to uh, invitations at Christmas time. If they can't come on a Sunday, maybe they can come that uh, Christmas Eve and be a part of our celebration there as well. Uh, But for today... We are finishing up the series right in the eye. And if you're coming in late, it's kind of like coming in at the end of the movie, you know. Um, and if something captures your attention and you kind of think, wow, I wish I had been there from the beginning, you can go online, listen to our podcast, go to our website, uh, get caught up on that. That's all there free. Uh, listen to that, share it with a friend, uh, discuss it. Uh, that would be great. It's all there for you. Now, the series has been centered around the idea that there's something in all of us that wants to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, and with whom we want to do it. And we add that little American caveat, you know, like as long as nobody gets hurt. So we've talked about that idea through this series because there was a period in the history of Israel when that's exactly what everybody did. In fact, at the end of the Old Testament book of Judges that we've been looking at, the final statement, uh, the, the sort of the summation of the entire 300 plus years uh, was this. In those days, There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And there's a little bit of that in me. There's a little bit of that in you. And the tragedy for Israel is exactly the tragedy for you. That God had established the nation of Israel to do something extraordinary. But instead of looking up, they began looking around and they were like, well, we want to be just like all of our neighbors, all the other nations. And, and time after time after time, they would disobey God and they would break God's law and they would get in trouble and suffer the consequences for their sins. And then they would do what we do, you know, like, oh, God, please bail me out, you know, help me, God, you know, I promise I'll never, ever do that again. And God would bail the nation of Israel out over and over and over and over because God had made a promise and he said to the nation, I am going to use you to be a light to the Gentiles. I'm going to use Israel to bless the entire world. And you can work with me or you can watch me work, but I'm going to fulfill my promise. And so uh, in this very, very dark time in the history of Israel, God continued to work in spite of the fact that the nation of Israel had abandoned God over and over. And in fact, right in the middle of this very, very dark time when everybody did what was right in their own eyes, God was actually preparing and decorating for Christmas. In the midst of this very dark time, and we've heard, we've seen some of that, just chaos over and over and over, uh, right in the middle of this, when Israel had lost faith in God and decided, well, you know, God's not around and the stories. You know, I I don't know if they were true or not, but God's obviously not active anymore in our nation and in our world. In the midst of that, God was actually setting the table and preparing the way for the very first Christmas. And he used two real, real interesting people. He used a woman who was so angry with God that uh, she was so disappointed with God, she declared to her, her entire town, God has abandoned me. God has forsaken me. And when I look at my circumstances Like, there is no evidence there is a God, and if there is a God, well, He certainly doesn't care for me. And maybe you feel like that too. 
And then in the story, God also uses a man who was just extraordinary in the sense that even though he looked around and saw no evidence of God's activity and no evidence of God's faithfulness, he decided to kind of swim against the stream and against the, the, the current of his culture. And he decided to remain faithful to God because he believed that God was at work even when he could not see God at work. And God, in his very unusual way, brought this man and this woman together and in doing so, set the table and, and saved Christmas. So, uh, we're going to be looking at the Old Testament book of Ruth. And you guys are familiar with the story of Ruth probably. Uh, we actually looked at it earlier this year, but what you may not know is that the story of Ruth actually happens during this period of the Judges, this part of Israel's history we've been talking about for the past four weeks. Um, and the story happens right in the middle, and it's kind of the bright spot. It's sort of the anomaly, you know, the aberration uh, for everything that was going on and, and the fact that God was preparing the way for Christmas. So let me tell you the story. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Here's how the whole thing begins. It says, In those days, when the judges ruled, that's what we've been talking about, there was a famine in the land, so a man from Bethlehem, there's our city, in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live in the country of Moab. They went to live for a while in Moab. Now, Moab is on the other side of the Dead Sea from where Bethlehem is. And so to get there is kind of a dangerous trek. Uh, but there's famine in the land of Israel. And so they decide, we're going to take off. We're going to go to Moab. And the, the man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. Well, they get there to Moab and they decide, well, you know what? Our sons need to get married. Problem is, they're in Moab, you know, and all the women are Moabites. And God's law said, don't marry foreign women. Not because God was against interracial marriage, but the problem was back then when you married somebody from another race, not only did you get them, you got all their family gods and their na national gods. And, and God was trying to keep the, the nation of Israel pure religiously. But hey, you know, like when you're in Moab, do as the Moabites do. So they marry their two sons off to Moabite women. Well, time goes by and Elimelech dies. And so it's just Naomi and her two sons and her two her two daughters-in-law, and then her oldest son dies. And then her next son dies. And Naomi, she's just this Jewish woman in Moab. The only family she's got left are her two daughters-in-law who are both Moabites. And Naomi decides, God is definitely against me. Like God's cursed me. He's not around. He's obviously not listening to my prayers. And she ends up deciding to leave Moab, go back to Judah, and specifically to Bethlehem. And she says to her daughters-in-law, look, you know, sorry you guys got messed up and all this. You know, I'm going back to Bethlehem. You guys stay here. You get married. You know, have a nice life. Uh, God's obviously abandoned me. And um, one of the daughters-in-law decides to stay in Moab. The other uh, gal named Ruth decides to stay with Naomi. And this is a big deal because this is a very dangerous decision for her. If you've been with us throughout the series, you know kind of what a dangerous world this was for women. And most of the world during these ancient times was a very dangerous place for women. And so uh, uh, Ruth says to Naomi, no, I'm going to stay with you. And Naomi's like, no, no, no. Like, it's too dangerous. You're going to be in a foreign land. You know, these are my people, not your people. Eventually, you know, I'm going to die. You're going to be left all alone. Moabite in Israel, too dangerous for you. And Ruth, in one of the most beautiful passages in all of ancient literature, and certainly one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture, she says this, Ruth replied to Naomi, her mother-in-law, where you go, I will go. 
And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there, I will be buried. She's like, Naomi, I'm going with you. And so Ruth, this young Moabite widow, and Naomi, this older Israelite widow, make their way back to Bethlehem. And they survive the journey. They get to town. And people begin to look at the older woman and they are like, they begin to whisper like, doesn't she look familiar? Is that Naomi? Is it? Who's the other, who's the other gal with her? Like, who's, you know, is it really Naomi? And they track her down. And, and they're like, hey, Naomi, what happened? You know, it's been years since we've seen you. And she's like, don't call me that anymore. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara which means bitter. She's like, I'm no longer Naomi, I'm bitter. Well, why are you bitter? She says, well, because the Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. There is no God. And if there is a God, He doesn't know my name. And if there is a God, He certainly doesn't hear my prayers. And if there is a God, all those stories that we've heard about God in the past, like clearly God's not interested in me. And in that moment, it's as if Naomi is kind of a microcosm for the entire nation of Israel that had said, God's no longer the God of Israel. God's abandoned the nation. But here's something interesting, because 3,500 years later, we know her name. She's one of the very few women of this period of ancient history whose name and story has survived. Because not only had God not abandoned her, she was about to be at the epicenter of the activity of God. And she didn't even know it. Our story continues. When Naomi and Ruth arrived back in Bethlehem, it's barley harvest season. This is important because like, there would be landowners who had like acres and acres and acres of land, and they would plant barley and they would send their servants out during harvest time to harvest the barley. And the law of Moses said you can go through the field once. You can harvest one time. After that, just leave the leftovers, okay? Leave it for the widows and the poor that come along after you and uh, pick up the remains. And that was one of the ways that um, they took care of the poor. And so Naomi says to Ruth, like, Ruth, look, we can't survive unless we do something. And so, like, you need to go join the poor and the widows because I'm too old to go. And I need you to go into one of those fields and just pick up uh, whatever you can so we can either eat it ourselves or maybe sell some of it so we can survive. And Ruth goes into one of these random fields and it's very, very dangerous because like there are women kind of alone scattered throughout the fields in this male-dominated society and there's, there's a, she's got no provider, no protector. She's a foreigner. And as we've seen in this book, just how little women were valued during this time when everybody was just doing uh, whatever was right in their own eyes. Well, it just so happens that she chooses the property of a man named Boaz. And Boaz goes out into his field and he sees this foreign woman out there with all the other Israelite women who are picking up the gleanings from the field. He asks like one of his guys, like, hey, hey, who's the new woman? Well, that's, that's Ruth. She's the daughter-in-law of Naomi. And the story had circulated about this Moabite woman, this strange Moabite woman who had chosen to remain faithful to her mother-in-law, even though it meant leaving her, her family and her country and taking this dangerous trek around the Dead Sea into this area of Israel in the city of Bethlehem. Well, Boaz is quite impressed. In fact, he has a conversation with Ruth later on in the story. And he says, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. We've all heard like, hey, you remain faithful to Naomi, one of our people. How you left your father and mother in your homeland, and came to live with a people you didn't even know before. Like, she'd never, never been to that part of the world before. 
Then listen to what he says. This is so out of character with everything else that's going on during this part of history. He says, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. In other words, Boaz says, I believe God's still a God of honor and God is a God of cause and effect and I believe God respects those who make the right decision. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, the very God that Naomi had assumed had abandoned her, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then he says, uh, Boaz says to his servants, like, hey, leave her alone. Don't molest her. Like, basically, she's in my safekeeping. Let her take all she wants. Don't bother her at all. She's an honorable woman who's done this honorable thing, not simply just some foreigner who wandered in to take advantage of our uh, generosity. So treat her with respect. Well, as a result of that, she's very successful in her gleaning. Eventually, she has a conversation with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Uh, Naomi's like, hey, where are you gleaning? Anyway, you're coming back with way more than I expected. She's like, well, I found favor with a man in the city. His name is Boaz. Naomi's like, Boaz? I know him. Like, he's a distant relative of my late husband. So time goes by. Things are kind of working out. But Naomi's getting older, and, and Ruth's getting older. And finally, Naomi says to Ruth one day, like, Ruth, look, you know, I'm going to die. And once I die, you'll be on your own. You need protection. You need a covering. And so Naomi decides Ruth needs to find what they call a kinsman redeemer. Now, I've got to stop and explain this because this is an important part of the story. Uh, best way to think of a kinsman redeemer is kind of like your rich uncle. You know, it's, everybody's kind of got that rich uncle, you know. Maybe they're not even part of your, your real uncle, but they're part of your extended family, you know, my, my sisters, brothers, cousins, boyfriends, you know, it's like this, this guy, you know, whenever there's a problem in, in your family or a financial issue, you go, oh, call Ralph, you know, like it, Ralph can help you out, you know, he's kind of like the richest person we know who's kind of part of our family. That's kind of what a kinsman redeemer was. Kinsman redeemer was this wealthy person in an extended family that people would go to when they got in trouble. And in this culture, kinsman redeemer didn't have to step in and help, but it was kind of this official title. Sometimes it gets translated as Avenger, kind of an Old Testament Tony Stark. Uh, the person would step in and step up and help a family member who was in distress. And basically, there were four things a kinsman redeemer uh, could be asked to do. They could be asked to protect uh, an impoverished family member or an impoverished family. You know, they could go to the kinsman redeemer and say, hey, can you help out? You know, I'm kind of as tight and can I get a loan? Or could you like help me with, with my bills? Second thing they could do is, is they could be asked to repurchase lost property because sometimes there were like liens put on property or people just lost it because of debt or gambling or something or they were just unable to take care of it. So a kinsman redeemer could go and buy back that piece of property for the family member. They could redeem relatives who were sold as slaves because if you owed too much money, like you could be sold into slavery or one of your kids could be sold into slavery. Um, there's an Old Testament proverb that says the, uh, the debtor is slave to the lender. This is literally true at this time in history. Like, kind of glad that's not still a thing, right? I'm thinking, like, gives a whole new meaning to the term MasterCard. So, you know, you get in trouble. Yeah, yeah. Um, hey, which one of my kids? So the kinsman the redeemer could come in and pay somebody the money that you owe uh, to buy your children or one of your relatives out of slavery. Then the other thing the kinsman redeemer could do, and only in like extreme emergencies, um, they could be asked to provide an heir when a male relative had died and there was no other male relative. So the kinsman redeemer would help uh, provide a male relative, uh, an heir, to further the line of somebody's name or somebody's estate. So Naomi says to Ruth, look, we need to find you a kinsman redeemer. 
Well, to the best of Ruth's understanding, this isn't going to happen because she's not even Jewish. Like she's, she's Moabite and she's not Israelite. She's not even from Bethlehem. And the way this would work was uh, in order for somebody to be Naomi's kinsman redeemer, they would actually have to marry Ruth because Naomi's like too old to have any more children. She can't extend the family line. So we find out in the story that there's also a piece of property like Naomi's ex or late husband had, or his family had and had been lost somehow. And like, okay, she needed to get the property back with this. So there's this estate in question. And so Naomi says to Ruth, like, look, we need to find a kinsman redeemer. And basically, she says to Ruth, to use our, you know, our terms, Ruth, you need to ask Boaz to marry you. Because that's what it came down to. You need to ask Boaz to be our kinsman redeemer. But understand, that's equal to a marriage proposal. The only way he steps in as a kinsman redeemer, he would need to marry you because I'm, I'm too old. I need, to, I need you to ask Boaz to marry you. Now, in our very highly sexualized American culture, uh, when people read this story, they read all kinds of stuff into it that's just not even there. Because uh, they're picturing, th- like, oh, this hot Moabite woman, you know, goes in and they've got a, you know, 65-year-old Boaz and his wives are old anyway. And, you know, and this Moab, like, hey, babe, you know, it's like, no, no, it's not in there. You know, none of that. It's not even insinuated. In fact, the opposite is kind of true because this is a very, very risky venture for anyone to be a kinsman redeemer, especially for a woman and especially for a foreign woman. And here's why. Because like once uh, she becomes part of the estate, because once the man was responsible for a woman, you were also responsible for their children and the behavior of their children. And then if something happened to one of your sons, a large portion or maybe your entire estate would go to this person that you chose to include in your family. So it's a very risky, very sacrificial kind of a decision for anybody to make. So Ruth, in this powerful narrative, and I'll just let you read it for yourself, but in the most appropriate way uh, that would fit that culture, she goes to Boaz knowing he could say no and probably would say no. I, like It's one thing for you to let me glean from your field and to kind of protect me uh, from your servants, but... It's a whole other thing for, to marry me and bring my family and all my liabilities into your family. But she goes to him and she requests, Boaz, would you be my avenger, my, my kinsman redeemer? And he says, yes, but there's one hitch. Because there's a relative that's even closer to Naomi than me. And this guy gets first dibs, kind of first right of refusal on the estate and on you. So he says to Ruth, I'm going to go to him uh, because... Boaz is an honorable man. You know, he's like, okay, you know, I, I know we're just going to play by the rules and, you know, trust the process. This is the law that God established. And even though everybody else has abandoned God, I'm going to keep the law. And so Boaz says, I'm going to go to this other relative, see if I can work this thing out. And you can read the details for yourself. He goes, meets this guy at the city gate because that's where transactions happen. He meets with the guy and he says, hey, Naomi through Ruth has asked me to be their kinsman redeemer, but you're closer to them and uh, you can buy the property. uh, But on the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite. Because she's like property, you know? You buy the land, Ruth comes with the land. and And the dead man's widow, Naomi, uh, in order to maintain the name of the dead with the property. So if you get the property, which is a good deal, you also get Naomi and the Moabite woman. Not sure that's a good deal. And you got, you know, uh, and you have to have to at least try to have uh, children with Ruth. And if she has a son, 
like uh, that son will have inheritance and and some of that inheritance is going to come out of your estate like are you willing to do that and this guy is like at this the guardian redeemer or another another phrase used for kinsman redeemer or avenger said i i cannot redeem it because i might endanger my own estate <laughs> you redeem it yourself too risky i can't do it I, I don't know what comes with that. You know, I don't know if she's got like some wacky family on the other side of the Dead Sea is going to show up at my door afterwards, or you know, I you know, it's like I don't know what's going to happen with my own sons, and it makes Christmas complicated, and you know, it's just like okay, uh, like nobody's going to accept her, and she's a foreigner, and all that. So hey, if you want her, you know, you take her. No thanks. And Boaz, an honorable man, recognizes who recognizes the honor in Ruth, and who honored her mother-in-law. The mother-in-law that decided God had abandoned her. I'm bitter. You know, God's abandoned me. The, the Almighty's forgotten me. Boaz marries Ruth. And that could be the end of the story. You know, the, the one true honorable man in the culture, one of the few does the honorable thing, takes a risk with a Moabite woman in order to honor this distant relative, make sure that she has a covering and protection. End of story. Except, God had made Israel a promise. And God keeps his promises. And even though Israel wasn't going to cooperate, God does not back down from what he promised. And so Ruth and Boaz are married, and they have a son, and his name is Obed. And if you read like the book of Ruth, there's this real tender moment in the story where old Naomi is holding baby Obed, and she looks at this baby and she's like, oh, God was faithful to me after all. Like I gave up on God and I decided... God had abandoned me, but God's alive and God allowed me to live long enough to hold this baby and I've seen God redeem me and my family. And then Naomi dies and Boaz dies. Eventually Ruth dies. But Obed grows up and is married and he has a son. And Obed's son is named Jesse. And Jesse has a whole bunch of sons and years go by and, and uh, one day God speaks to the prophet Samuel and he's like, hey Samuel, I'm about to do something new in the nation of Israel. I'm about to uh, enter a brand new era in the nation of Israel, about to do something that's going to have ramifications for thousands of years in the nation. And I need a man to be king. And so I want you to take your horn of oil for anointing and I want you to go find me a king. And here's what it says in 1 Samuel, God speaking to the prophet Samuel. He says, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. Jesse, son of Obed, son of Boaz, who took a risk and married a Moabite woman in an era when it seemed like God had abandoned the nation. He says, I've chosen one of his sons to be king. And, and so Samuel shows up and he says to Jesse, like, hey, Jesse, I need you to line up all your sons because God has chosen one of your sons to be king. And of course, it's a good day, you know, like when somebody shows up at your house and says one of your kids is going to be king. Like you don't even really care which one. You're going to be father to the king, right? So the story goes that Jesse lines up all of his sons and Samuel looks at the oldest and he kind of looks like a king, but God's like, no, not him. And he looks at the next one and God says no. And he looks at the third one and God says no. And it goes all the way down the line. God says no to all of them. And Jesse's, uh, Samuel's like, Jesse, uh, pretty sure I'm at the right house, but you got any more sons? And Jesse's like, well, yeah. There is my youngest. He's out in the field, but I'm telling you, he is not the king. You know? And Samuel's like, well, I'm not going to sit down until you bring him in. And, and onto the pages of history walks David, the second king of Israel. David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the husband of Ruth, the Moabite who was faithful to her mother-in-law. And years go by, and another prophet, Nathan, appears to David. 
And he speaks on behalf of God, and here's what he says to King David. He says, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And from that prophecy, the people recognize that if there's going to be a Messiah, you know, like if there's going to be the Savior of the world and this, this king who reigns forever, you know, if that's going to happen, this king is going to come from the line of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, husband of Ruth, the Moabite. And David has a son who had a son who had a son, and about 25 pregnancies or 25 begats later, to use the, the gospel ter- term. Uh, it says, Eleazar, the father of Nathan, Nathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who's called the Messiah. And so 25 pregnancies later, Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, is born on Christmas Day. And throughout his life, he would be referred to not only as the Messiah, the Son of God, but Jesus, the Son of David. Because he was born in the city of David, Bethlehem, the home of Naomi, who would bring a Moabite woman, who would marry Boaz, who would have a son, who would have a son, who would have a son, who would have a son. And many, many years later, Jesus was born. And that's how Boaz and Ruth saved Christmas for all of us. Now, here's the amazing thing. This is huge, because when Jesus was born all those years later, wise men sought him out. And they announced to his family and they announced to basically anyone who would listen that he wasn't simply a baby, he was a king. A king had been born. And not only did they believe he was a king, but the reigning king, Herod, believed he was a king and did everything he could to stamp out this king that had been born. And then many years later, Jesus would stand in front of Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, the appointed by Tiberius, the emperor of Rome, and Pontius Pilate would say to Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus would stare down the power of Rome and say, it is as you say, I am a king. I was born for this. But don't misunderstand me. My kingdom is not of this world, Pilate. It's a kingdom of the heart. It's a kingdom of the conscience. I am not simply king of the Jews. I've come to reign and to rule in the hearts of men. Yeah, I am a king, but not a king as you think. And it's so interesting to me, Pontius Pilate, who everybody would have known back then, has simply become another footnote in the story of King Jesus. Jesus, the king who leveraged his power for the powerless. Jesus, the king who did what no other king even thought of doing. Like Instead of requiring his followers to die for him, He would be the king that would turn it all around and turn it all upside down and lay down his life for his followers. And yes, he was a king. He's the king that gives every single one of us the opportunity and extends to every single one of us the invitation to invite him in to reign and to rule in our hearts today. And whereas it took God hundreds and hundreds of years to prepare for the first Christmas, you, in a single decision can become part of the story. You, in a single decision, can take that entire story of hundreds and hundreds of years of preparation and suddenly, with a single decision, it can become personal for you when you yield your heart to your Creator King. You yield your heart to your Savior, the King, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we conclude the series, as 
we go into this incredible season of celebration, I want to invite you to consider doing something that you know, perhaps you've never done before. That's simply deciding, like, God, instead of sitting on the throne of my own heart, I want to do, yeah, doing what I want to do when I want to do it, you know, with who I want to do it, and, you know, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. To say, God, in this season, I want to recognize Jesus as my king and yield the throne of my heart to him and invite him into my life to reign and to rule. And other like, unlike other kings, he will not force you to submit. In the New Testament, there's this image of, of King Jesus knocking on the door of your life, just waiting for you to invite him in. And if you've never done that, I want to give you the opportunity to do that today. And if you've, you've been away for a while and you're like, oh, Rob, you know, I've heard the stories before, you know, but I've been doing what I want, when I want, with whom I want, and it's not working for me, would God really take me back? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Read the book of Judges, like time after time after time, like the nation rebelled, and time after time after time, their Heavenly Father took them back. So whether it's the first time for you or you know, just kind of a renewal for you. I want to lead you in, in a prayer. And the words aren't magic words. It's not even words that matter. It's, it's just the opportunity, this prayer is, for you to express to your Heavenly Father that you are yielding the throne of your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, our King, our Savior, our Messiah. So I want to lead you in this prayer. Would you just bow your head as a sign of reverence and close your eyes? If you're ready, just pray with me. Just say, Heavenly Father, I believe Jesus is your Son. I believe He is the King. And I want Him to be my King. I yield the, the throne of my heart to Him. I believe that when He died, He died for me. I believe that when He died, He took my sins. So please forgive me. Forgive me for all the stuff that I did intentionally. Forgive me for all the stuff that I did not even knowing. just accidentally rebelled. I, I no longer want to do just what's right in, in my own eyes. I want to do what's right in your eyes. So help me to see the world the way that you see it. Open my eyes that I could see myself the way that you see me. And give me the wisdom and the courage to know what to do from this day forward. I yield my life to you in Jesus' name. Father, that's an invitation that you give to all of us. And it's good for all of us to pray that prayer every day. I yield my life to you. Lord, be my king. Lord, I don't know where this hits us, uh, but I know that we all need to, to be praying that prayer to constantly yield to you. So I pray that uh, you would give us wisdom to know how to do that. Give us the courage to take that, that next step that we need to take, whatever that might be. We love you and we ask all these things now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.